Okay, I want us to turn to, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Luke 13 today. Boy, like I said, that drainage just walk in the door and all of a sudden it got me. Luke 13. We're going to look at this word a little bit uh, that's used here, perish. Jesus twice there says, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. That's in Luke 13. Now, of course, that word's used numerous times in the New Testament in various forms. Um, it's translated as destroyed. It's translated as die. It's translated as lost. It's a very should be a very familiar word used in many, many passages here. And so we want to talk about that word this morning. Now, there's also something I'll just briefly mention that's... Um, kind of being bantered about in the last several years. It's called not replacement theology, but consensus theology. And actually, it's been around quite a long time. It just didn't go by that name. But it's the idea that when you have basic disagreements on interpretation of Scripture, the best thing to do is find out what the church at large has believed through the centuries, and you just kind of cling to that, and you'll be okay. <laughs> and Jack's going, no, <laughs> uh-uh. And really, I mean, that, that is, that's the spell of doom when you take that approach. You know, it only, and like one guy said, it only takes one person to get it right. And if they're right, then that's where you need to stay. If, even if it against, goes against the tide uh, of the and the consensus of the rest of Christianity or Christendom or whatever other expression you want to use to describe what the teaching of Scripture is all about. And quite frankly, this is one of those, this word here. Many times it goes against convention. And that's what we're going to look at today just, just for a little bit. Because most people, when they read the word perdition uh, and destruction or and the word perish in particular, or the word lost. You know, they're so loaded with theological baggage that they can't really see anything else but what is commonly taught. And that is that these are all unregenerate people. They're all lost and going to hell and dying by the millions every day. You know, and we've got to get the gospel to them and blah, blah, and on and on. And that's simply not the case. In every, in, in, every, in every passage of Scripture. As a matter of fact, as I mentioned, in some passages of Scripture, actually several, the word does literally mean just physically to die. Now, sometimes, even where we can see the idea of physically dying, I get the idea that um, it could be taken a couple of ways, or maybe it goes a little bit deeper than just physically dying. I'll give you an example, like when the sons of Korah were destroyed in the wilderness. You know, they says they were destroyed. They physically died. But there was something else attached to that dying. And that is they lost their privilege. And they lost their privilege of proceeding on to the promised land. And so even in many of those cases where we talk about physical death, it, I think the scripture even intimates and goes deeper than that with the attached idea of the loss that goes along with that. 
And quite frankly, the actual meaning of the word in the, the, the New Testament, that is, the Greek word, apolumi, means loss or ruin, to suffer loss, to suffer ruin. And it's the most basic, simplest form. And so when it's talking about being destroyed or being lost or perishing, the basic fundamental idea behind the meaning of that word is to suffer a loss of something. Now, it could be loss of physical life. That's true. But we're going to be looking at another dimension of that today. Um, you know, and we use the word lost in, in another dimension. You know, most of the time when we think of losing something, like the other day, lost some keys, hunted all over the house, lose your telephone. When you say lost or I lost whatever it was, you mean I can't find it. I don't know where it is. But we use the word lost in other senses also. We might say something like, um, um, instead of saying I have a wayward son, you might say I have a lost son. You know, he's lost to my family. Or you might say something like, I just found a long lost relative. In other words, you didn't know they existed. You just found out you had a long lost relative. You didn't know they were there. They weren't lost in the sense that you couldn't find them. And so we use lost in several different kind of ways like that. And the scripture does too. And that's what we're going to look at today. So here in Luke 13, let's read this passage here, verses 1 through 9. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things. I tell you, nay, <coughs> but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen, upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. And then said he unto the uh, dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? In other words, why let this thing keep taking up space here? It's just wasting space. Cut it down. And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. Now they may not sound like there's a connection between the parable and the, those illustrations regarding the perishing ones and the repenting. But I think there is. And that's one of the things I intend to get to today. Who were the Galileans? I didn't even realize this myself. I had to do some study on it. When you ask about, you know, it's more than just people from Galilee. <laughs> you remember that back in 722 BC, the northern tribes were carried off into captivity. And basically, they vacated the land. 
Some think that maybe some of the poor people and the lesser, you know, important people stayed to keep the land productive and operative for a while. And then that some other uh, people from these other nations came in and settled there. But basically, for about 600 years, there was very little activity and very little record of what went on in the area of Galilee. But around 100 years before Christ, some Jews from Judea went up to the Galilee area and they settled there. And thus became a population of Jews in that, excuse me, in that area. Consequently, in Jesus' ministry, of course, he based out of Galilee, he would, excuse me, what? He would pass through Samaria which was not populated with Jews particularly, on his way down to Judea, which was. And so he would go from Judea through Samaria up to Galilee or vice versa, and he would have to pass through those areas. Now these Galileans, they were looked upon by the ones from Judea. It's kind of like a northern-southern thing, you know. Uh, The southerners here, the Judeans, looked with less favor upon the northerners. Uh, the Galileans, and that's evident in Scripture as well. And so here they're asking Jesus about this account here of how Pilate had mingled their blood with their sacrifices. Now, there's no secular account of this incident, so we have nothing to lean back on. But apparently, and this was not an unusual thing, These Galileans had come down to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices. And for whatever reason, he he killed them. And in the process of killing them, their blood became mingled with the sacrifices. Now, that would be an abhorrence to any Jew, you know, for their human blood, their personal blood, to be mixed in with the sacrifices that they were taking in before the Lord into the temple area. And so they were looking down upon this as being some kind of, uh, you know, a lesser thing, an evil thing, a bad thing. And doesn't say they, you know, suspected anything about this, but Jesus in his answer kind of clues us in to the attitude they had. He says in verse 2, Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans? Because they suffered such things? In other words, he knew what their mindset was. And he's saying, you think that just because this happened to them, this tragic happening, that made them a greater sinner than all the rest of the Galileans. And he tells them in verse 3, I tell you, nay, no, not the case. And that's the end of it. He doesn't say anything else about it. Not so. These who were slain in the temple courts, having their blood mingled with their sacrifices, are no worse sinners than all the rest of the Galileans. That's what he's telling them. But then he says, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Now the word likewise means just like you'd expect it. Likewise, in the same way, or even so. 
you will perish. Now, these suffered perishing. They were killed. They physically died. And at first look or first glance, you would think, well, that must mean that these that brought this message to Jesus and asked him this question about these Galileans, he's telling them they're going to die the same way. A tragic death. Well, let's just stop there and read verse 4. <clears throat> or, he gives us another illustration. Those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them or killed them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? Well, now we got those in Galilee. Now here we have those in Jerusalem. So he's basically covering all the bases. And in this little incident, the Tower of Siloam, which again, no historical evidence for this, no records of any kind, so we don't really know what's behind it all. But these 18 was assumed that, you know, because they died in this tragic way, that they must have been a greater sinner than all the rest of the men. And it's the word anthropos. It's talking about men in general, all the men, the women, all the people from Jerusalem. You think there are any worse sinners than all the rest of them from Jerusalem? And Jesus said, no. But except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Exact same words. Now it's interesting in verse 4, the word sinners there is a different word than the one in verse 2. And it actually is the word for a debtor, meaning one who owes something. Now, I don't really pretend to know the implications of that for sure. And I could make up a story here that I think would probably make a good argument, but I have no clue if it's right or not because we have no record here. I don't know. I don't know what the Tower of Siloam was. Generally speaking, a tower was one the thing that spoke of strength. It was a place of security. It was a place to flee to for safety. And you remember how that would happen. You've read various occasions when they would flee to a tower and they'd go up and then they'd take pour their hot oil or throw down some rocks or millstones or whatever on somebody and try to kill them. It was supposedly a place for security. When they went there, for whatever reason, well, the walls fell in and they all died. Now, I have no idea beyond that, beyond just, you know, what the Scripture plainly says. But the illustration or the application that he makes is that the manner in which these perished, he said, they, they lost their lives. He said, except you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, I don't know if there was some connection between the ones who were slain in the temple court and the ones who died in the falling of the wall there in the Tower of Siloam, if, you know, there, there's nothing said about repentance there. But repentance is made a part of the application when Jesus speaks to these who are questioning him about this. And then you'll notice that it just stops and he begins with a parable. And the parable concerning this fig tree. But I think there's a, somewhat of a, a correlation there. And I think that 
the whole idea um, will become clearer as we examine this and look at some other passages of Scripture, quite a few. And in this passage, it's real simple. The guy plants a tree, a fig tree, and it says he comes back in three years wanting to find fruit. Now, it's my understanding that's the normal time. When you plant a fig tree, you should be able to come back in three years and find it bearing fruit. He came back and didn't find any. And in that one year, he was immediately, he was, or in that one time, he was ready to cut it down and get rid of it. But the caretaker of the vineyard pleaded with him to give it another year. And I'll fer- dig around it and I'll fertilize it and we'll see if we can't get that thing producing some fruit. But he says, if it doesn't, if it does, great. But if it doesn't, then you can cut it down. And of course, I think a couple of important points here would be that the patience being shown by the caretaker to give it another year, another opportunity to produce some fruit. But the second point was, is that there does come a final judgment. Because he said, if it doesn't produce fruit then, then we'll cut it down. We'll just remove it from the vineyard and get rid of it. Try planting another one. Now, with those thoughts in mind, let's turn to a few passages of Scripture where this word perish is used, and let's see if we can't come back and maybe tie this in with this and see just exactly what he's speaking of. Um, look at Matthew chapter 21. Familiar passage. You've looked at this verse probably many times. There's another parable here, beginning in verse 33. And it's about a vineyard also. And in this vineyard, he had planted a, or he'd hedged it around about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to a husbandman and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, there was an expected time when he was planning to come and reap the benefits of, of having planted this vineyard here. And in verse 35, the husbandman took his servants and they beat the one and then he sent another and he uh, beat him too and killed him and so on. <clears throat> and he said, he, then in verse 38, he saw, sent the son and they saw him and they said, well, this is the heir, let's kill him and then we'll have the uh, inheritance. And so in verse 39, they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord therefore, therefore of his, the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen, Jesus asked. And they answered this, he will miserably destroy, those, which is our word there, he will apolumi, cause destruction, destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. In other words, he's going he's to do what is necessary to get the fruit. And so in verse 42, Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? 
This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And, of course, the issue here was the bringing forth of fruit. And really, I think it's the same thing with the fig tree. The fig tree is illustrative of Israel, and they failed to bear the fruit that God expected of them, and so their privileges were taken away. In one case here, the fig tree is removed, or will be removed if it doesn't bear fruit. In this case, he's simply saying because it didn't bear fruit, he said, we'll give it to other husbandmen who will care for it, who will produce the fruit. And because of that, he said, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation that will do so. Now, having that in mind, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, we won't even, won't even, even, even come close to looking at all the passages that deal with this word. Apolumi. Verse 28 of Acts 28 says, Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and that they will hear it. Now, after having preached the kingdom of God through the book of Acts, and Paul having begun his ministry and preaching to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile, the final conclusion as we come to the end of the book of Acts He said, you know, basically, be it known to you that the salvation of God is being sent to the Gentiles. Now, that word, salvation of God, that phrase, again, is a loaded word, and it has reference to the the full uh, reference of the meaning of the word salvation of God here, and its whole context has to do with the message that Jesus preached, the gospel of the kingdom, the salvation that it is attendant to, participation in the coming kingdom of the Messiah. And he's simply saying, let it be known to you that those who want to experience this salvation is going to be sent to those who will hear it. And of course, Jesus says earlier in the passage we just read, they will bear the fruits, the necessary fruit. The Gentiles will. So we see that in this connection, that the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom had connected with it the bearing of the requisite fruit that would enable them to have participation in the coming kingdom. Called here in Acts chapter 28, verse 18, the salvation of God. Now, of course, I've mentioned this on earlier occasions. We've never gone to an in-depth study of it. But in the vast majority, if not all, So I'm going to leave myself some wiggle room there. But in the vast majority of the uses of the word save and saved and salvation, when you go back and examine the context of them, you'll see that it all has to do with the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. That being saved has reference to participation in this coming promised kingdom. Now, that's the positive side. The negative side, of course, is the perishing side, or that word lost. You know, in that passage, he said, except you repent, 
ye shall all likewise perish. I want us to look at a couple of passages, some other passages. Look back with me at Psalm 119. Psalm 119, that's that great big psalm that has 176 verses in it, and I want us to turn to the 176th verse, the very last one. And let's see what he says here regarding sheep. He says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant, for I do not forget thy commandments. Now, I know that most, many, many people think David wrote this psalm, and he may very well have. I don't know who wrote it. But the psalmist, whoever he was, is telling us that he has wandered away. He has departed from the fold. And yet his heart was sensitive enough to the point where he wanted to get back into a right relationship with God. And so his plea is, seek thy servant. He went out looking for him. Now that ought to immediately send our antennas up to Luke 15. Where the one who had the hundred sheep had one that went astray. And what did he do? He immediately went out and sought for the one lost sheep. Our same word. Our ruined sheep. Of course, contextually ruined doesn't fit it very well there, does it? So lost does. But it's lost in the sense that it's suffering loss. It's suffering ruin because he's no longer a part of the, of, of the fold where the other 99 are. Now let's look over at Isaiah 53. And we're just going to work our way through the Old Testament for a little bit here and look at a couple passages that reference these same kinds of things. Isaiah 53, a very, very well-known verse here. I'm sure you probably know it by heart. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep. Have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, notice what he says there all we like sheep. It's the natural tendency of the sheep to wander away, and the shepherd has to constantly use the staff and the crook to pull them back into the fold and keep them. And, you know, together, where there's going to be a greater safety from the animal, the wild animals that were out there, you know, looking to devour a nice, tender little sheep or lamb or whatever. And he tells us, though, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. And there is some point in time, there is some way in our lives where all of us have done that. We've gone astray. We've gotten off the narrow path. And the Lord has gently and tenderly brought you back in a very wonderful, compassionate way. He brings us back. Just like the one who left the 99 
went out seeking that 100th sheep. And when he found it, he rejoiced. And he very gently put the lamb up on its shoulders and he brought it back. And that's what our Heavenly Father will do for us. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Some other familiar passages. Matthew chapter 10, verse 6. Uh, you know what was going on there. The Lord was sending out uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the 12 disciples here. They're going out to preach the gospel. And here he says in verse 6, Don't go to the Gentiles or into any of their cities. But he says, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And to preach the gospel to them. And when you preach, you say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And those who were to be the recipients of this message then had a responsibility. They were to believe it. And obey it. They were to repent and conduct their lives in accordance with this gospel message. Now, of course, we know in general what the nation of Israel did. They basically just rejected it and didn't believe it. Look over at chapter 18 of, the, of Matthew's gospel. Just turn a few pages over and we'll see another instance of this. Chapter 18 and verse 12. Verse 11 says, the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. But look in verse 12. How think ye, if a man have an hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine and goeth into the mountains and, and seeketh after that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoices more than that of, uh, more of that sheep. Then the ninety and nine, which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father, which is in heaven, that one of these little ones, talking about children here, should perish. In other words, if, if one of the 100 sheep was allowed to wander off and he didn't do anything about it and didn't go chasing them down, didn't go seek to bring them back to the fold then ultimately they would perish. And he's using that beautiful illustration to talk about one of these little children. It is not the will of your father that one of these little ones should perish or suffer loss or ultimately suffer ruin because of the conduct of some adult. In essence, is what he was saying. Look over to... Let's look at Luke 15 for a moment now. And in Luke 15, regarding these three, the sheep, the coin, and the prodigal son, the same reference is made to all. That which was lost, they went diligently seeking after. regarding the sheep and the coin. And they were persistent in seeking after it till it be found. And when it was found, great joy. But in the instance of the prodigal son, the father didn't go seeking him. 
But he allowed him to come to his senses and to come back of his own accord. And when he did, he received him with open arms and welcome with great joy. As a matter of fact, he wanted to throw a big party and the older son was upset about that. I think we get, we get the same idea sometime. You know, somebody that's been, as we would say, out in the world living in sin, wicked as can be for 10 or 20 years or whatever, and then the Lord works in their heart and lives. They bring them back to church. You know, we're kind of, well, we want to stay away just a little bit, don't we, Till we can really be sure, <laughs> rather than just holding our arms open wide and welcoming them in and receiving them as God the Father would receive this son here. Turn with me over to First First uh, Peter 2, I think it is. If I get the right one, or I don't know if it's First Peter, Second Peter. I think it was First Peter. Um, yeah. First Peter two twenty five. But you notice in what he's talking about here in this passage regarding the Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifice of his own life, he says in verse twenty four, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray but are now returned under the shepherd and bishop of your souls. And so, the straying sheep, he died, bore our sins in his own body on the tree for straying sheep. It's the straying sheep that he wants to bring back to himself. Look over with me now to John chapter 17. We'll go back here. And look at the passage here in this prayer of Jesus, this intense prayer that he wrought before the Father right before he was to go to the cross. Matter of fact, he says in verse 1 of chapter 17, John's gospel, the hour has come. The hour has come. It's here. Verse 2, he says, As you have given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life. We understand that to be age-abiding life or messianic life. Life for the age. The Father empowered the Son, gave him the authority to give this life. To as many, he says, as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal. This is life for the age. This is the messianic kingdom life, he says. That they might know thee. And notice the might there. It's in the realm of possibility that they would know, actually know him. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Turn, look at verse, uh, I have to turn, look at verse 8. For I have given unto them 
these that the Father had given to Jesus, he says, I have given unto them the words, the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. Verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost. And there's our word. These that belong to the Lord Jesus, those whom thou hast given to him, he says, I haven't lost a one, except the son of lostness, the son of perdition. It's the same word as the word lost. Different form, but it's the same word. Son of destruction, son of ruin, son of loss. That the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, when the scripture connects the word son of to somebody, and there is a descriptive term there, then it's, it's making a reference to, in a case like this, the character of the person. You remember in the Old Testament where he talked, well, even in the Gospels, he talks about the sons of Belial, the sons of worthlessness. Remember in 1 Kings with Hannah? She said, don't count me as a daughter of Belial. Don't look upon me as the character of one who is here drunk. And I'm here at the tabernacle praying and you think I'm drunk. Don't look upon me that way. And that's the way he's describing Judas here. The son of perdition. It's describing the kind of character ascribed to this one who's perishing. He's lost. He has been excluded from the group who was, who was given to Jesus that would be the recipients of the life of the age to come. And Judas was excluded from that. He wasn't going to be allowed to participate. Look at Matthew, or excuse me, um, 1 Corinthians 15. We've got two more to look at. 1 Corinthians 15. And verse 18. An interesting passage. Verse 18 says, Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished, ruined. Now that sounds interesting. If they've fallen asleep in Christ, how could they be ruined, <laughs> perished? Well, we have to look at the whole thing here. Look at verse, um, beginning with verse uh, 16. Of course, Paul here is arguing for the validity of the resurrection. And it was being denied. And he's setting forth the evidence for the reality and the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That he was alive right then as he was writing and ministering to those at Corinth. And so in verse 16, he says, for if the dead rise not... 
then is not Christ raised? Because if there's a doctrine, a teaching, and it's true that says that men don't rise from the dead, then that means Jesus didn't rise either. And if Christ be not raised in verse 17, your faith is vain. It has no value. It's worthless. That's the whole purpose of our faith, is to cling to the hope of the resurrection, to participation in this life to come, this coming age. And so he says then, if this is true, your faith is vain, then you are yet in your sins. And then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. In other words, those who held to their faith in Christ and they've already died, they're perished. No hope for them either. They're, they're ruined. There's nothing for anybody. There's no promise of a life to come. There's nothing out there. Death just ends it all and it's, you know, it's over with. Nothing to look forward to. And then he says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. <laughs> Boy, if it's, in other words, if having hope in Christ is really as the world says, it's just a crutch to get you along in life so that you can, you know, live a successful life because you're so weak morally and you're so weak in soul and you're psychologically, you just don't have it all together. So you need Jesus to get you along in life. If that's the only hope we have, Paul says, if that's the only thing that's going to get us through life, we are one miserable group with nothing to look forward to. Of course, I love that verse 20 then, but now is Christ risen. And he set forth the factual evidence in this chapter for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that we do have a hope. And that there is such a thing as those who will not experience that hope. And the Bible describes that as perishing. I want us to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3. And this again, another familiar passage. And we'll take a look at it because it fits the very thing that we're talking about here. And the thing I'm trying to bring forth is this simple connection that perishing, being lost in Scripture. And these contexts has to do with not experiencing the benefits that go with believing in the kingdom gospel, the life of the age to come. Has nothing to do, see, to say whether they are going to be lost and condemned forever and ever and ever. That's not the issue in, these, in this passage. The issue is what's the condition of their soul in relationship to the gospel that they have heard, this gospel of the kingdom. And he says it's one of being lost or perishing. It describes a person who will not experience the joys of the life of the age to come. Now in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul's talking about the gospel again, and he talks about our gospel in verse 3, and he says, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, or you could say literally to them that are perishing. The ones who have rejected this gospel, if it's hid to them, it's because they're perishing. 
in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, which is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants or bondslaves for Jesus' sake. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. That's the issue. God commanded the light to shine out of darkness, and he has shined it in our hearts. And if the light of the gospel has, has dawned upon our hearts, then it's for us to believe that gospel and walk in obedience to it. And in connection with that is the matter of repentance. See, if you believe that gospel, you can't just go on walking in your own old way. But connected with that gospel is repenting, turning, changing, and living a life that bears the fruit that goes along with this gospel. And if we don't bear the fruit, then the same thing's going to happen to us that happened to the fig tree. He's just going to dig it up and remove it. Or as we look at other language in scripture, he says, I'll cast, they'll be cast out into the outer darkness, the darkness outside. That's language describing the same kind of thing that he's speaking of here. And it just amazes me that over and over and over, the Lord Jesus drove this truth home throughout the three and a half years of his ministry using various means and, as it were, teaching angles, parables, illustrations to get this idea across. And as you look at the larger context, if you would go back, and I'm out of time, so I won't. If you would look at Luke chapter 12, and, and, and then, of course, you have to look at the whole gospel. Then you've got to look at all four gospels. Then you've got to look at the whole of Scripture and what Jesus came to do and the message that he was proclaiming then you would see that in this illustration, <clears throat> these two illustrations of the Galileans and those men at the Tower of Siloam, when he says, if you don't repent, you're going to perish like them, the whole context says he was pointing directly at this gospel that he'd been preaching. Well, here I am right in the pulpit lying, but I've got, got, to, I got to go back and tell you, look at it, one thing, one thing. Luke chapter 12, you need to look at this verse if you haven't looked at it before. Because Luke chapter 12 and verse 46 says this, concerning this servant, this disobedient, evil servant, he says, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him and in an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in sunder. He's going to dig the fig tree up and Get rid of it. And will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. Or more literally there, it's with the unfaithful. They simply won't be allowed to participate. Now, the whole point of this whole thing is, is that all we like sheep have gone astray. We all have a tendency to wander from time to time. But the joy and the promise of God's word is that 
he receives with great joy everyone that repents and comes back to him. He received with with gladness and joy. Matter of fact, he will often go out seeking, as in Luke 15, the lost sheep and bring you back. And I like the honesty. I like the integrity of this guy named Robert, excuse me, I lost my page here. It's supposed to be Robert Robinson. There he is. I don't know if he's a long lost relative or not. Robert Robinson. He wrote this hymn, Come Thou Found. And in the last verse, he says, O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. And of course, the courts speak of what? The temple. Speaks of the place where you worship the Lord. Speaks of the place where you enter into his presence. I read a little article one time from a very sound school. The author was reviewing this hymn here and just writing a story about this guy's life and what they knew and trying to determine, you know, the kind of theology, you know, what, what angle was he writing from here? And they even, they come up with the idea that he just wasn't sure he was saved. But I think it was just the opposite. I think he knew he was a genuine believer. He just knew the tendency of his own heart. Just like the scripture says, all we like sheep have gone astray. And he was very tender and dear to his relationship to the Lord. And he was pleading with the Lord, don't let me wander away. Take my heart, seal it, keep me near your throne. And that's where we should be today too, shouldn't we? It's a hard thing to do, isn't it? We fight, we we just go out and fight the battles every day. Spiritual warfare is a real thing. I hope you're in the battle. I hope it's a fight for you to keep your faith. Because if it isn't, there's something wrong there. You engage in a warfare. And just like the author of this hymn, his earnest plea was for the Lord to keep him near, near Nearer, nearer to thee, Lord, nearer to thee. Let's pray. And as we pray, let's ponder and think upon our own relationship to the Lord and where we are with him. Father, we thank you for this privilege and this opportunity to study your word. And we thank you, Lord, that in spite of the fact that there are so many warnings, so many scary things like this, and Yet we have the the wonderful promises of God that we simply, if we simply walk by faith, believing the promises of God, obedient to your word, that you will keep us. And that one day we will hear those, those wonderful words of reception. Your arms will be open wide to receive us with joy and gladness. Words in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.